That's where we're headed. We're going to look at Ephesians 5. We're going to look at a couple passages. They should be on your screen to follow along. Let's start with Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now we go back to the very beginning of the Bible. We go back to the very beginning of creation in Genesis 2 where the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then if you remember, God has this massive parade where he brings all of the animals and marches them in front of Adam to be named. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, he closed it up, the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then lastly, in the New Testament, Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for us in John 17, in verse 20, Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Let's pray together. Well, Father, these are your words, and they are words of life, and we desperately need them. And so I pray this morning that through you, Holy Spirit, you would press them upon us and bring these principles and the truths to bear upon our lives. Make them clear to us. Use them to challenge us and to heal us and to point us towards Jesus. God, we, uh, we want to see Jesus again this morning. And we know that in order to live out these promises, we need the gospel of Christ on which we stand. So we pray in your name. Amen. All right, I want to start this morning by reading an excerpt from uh, a book that I picked up a couple years ago. It's really been one of my favorite books that I had a chance to read over the last couple years. It's called The Boys in the Boat by Daniel Brown, and it's uh, about nine young American men who were a part of the University of Washington rowing team who pursued American gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Listen along as I read this excerpt about not only their lives, but what it takes to become a great crew. The author says, there's something in rowing that is hard to achieve and hard to define. Many crews, even winning crews, never really find it. 
Others find it, but they can't sustain it. It's called swing. It only happens when all eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by anyone is out of sync with those of all the others. It's not just that the oars enter and leave the water at precisely the same instant. Sixteen arms must begin to pull. Sixteen knees must begin to fold and unfold. Eight bodies must begin to slide forward and backward. Eight backs must bend and straighten all at once. Each, or, or, each minute action, each subtle turning of the wrist must be mirrored exactly by each oarsman from one end of the boat to the other. Only then will the boat continue to run unchecked, fluidly and gracefully between the pull of the oars. Only then will it feel as if the boat is part of each of them moving on on its own. Only then does the pain entirely give way to exultation. Rowing then becomes a kind of perfect language, poetry. That's what the swing feels like. The author goes on to say that no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews never have stars. It can only be, it must always be a team effort. The perfectly synchronized flow of muscles, oars, boat, and water, the single whole unified and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters, not the individual not the self. You know, the main character in this book who's highlighted is a guy named Joe Rance. And he says that this intense bonding, this sense of exhilaration that results from achieving the swing, that's what a crew really rows for. They don't row for trophies or accolades. They row for this thing, this bliss, this absolute harmony that's achieved in the swing. Joe in the book says it's divine. It's almost like you're touching the center of the universe. I've never felt closer to the sense of this is what I was made for than when I'm in the swing with the other eight boys in the boat. What I want to tell you this morning is that there is a type of connection with another human being that is so exhilarating, so satisfying that it touches the core of your being. It's almost poetic. It makes you want to sing. It makes you want to dance. It feels godlike. It's called oneness. Joe Rant says, this is what I was made for. And if there's anything I tell you this morning, it's that I want you to know you are made for it too. That God has designed human beings for oneness. Have you ever been on a team like that that's perfectly in sync? Have you ever listened to a symphony ensemble where all the musical notes are in perfect harmony? Have you ever had a business partner where you were in lockstep in terms of your plan and your vision, your gifts so perfectly complemented one another? Well, this morning I want to talk about the goal of marriage. It's oneness. That two people would become one flesh to the glory of God. And for the work of redemption in the world around us, the swing is hard to achieve. It's even harder to define. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to attempt to define oneness, biblical oneness. What is it? And then I want to talk about how do we achieve it in our marriages. So number one, what is merit? What is oneness? When Jesus prays for the disciples, did you notice in John 17, And the church to be one, to be one in unity, he is praying for a oneness that takes its cues 
from the relationship within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He prays, I pray that they would be one just as you are in me and just as I am in you. And so in the Old Testament, there's something like 40 names of God that are revealed about him. You have things like Jehovah Rophe, he is the God who heals, or Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, or the name is Jehovah Nisi, he is my banner. Now I want you to know about each one of those nicknames is that they refer to a particular aspect about how God relates to his creation. It's God's nickname is all about this is who I am and this is how I will relate to my creation and my people. But I want to ask this morning, what was God's name before anything ever existed? What was God like back then? Well, I would suggest that from Genesis to Revelation, the whole of Scripture is pointing to a reality and testifying that God's name was Father and Son and Holy Spirit from all eternity, forever and ever, amen. Now, if you were to think about that for very long, I realize that that will totally bake your brain. If you were to somehow think about what was the Trinity like before creation, your imagination will go to burnt toast. I mean, this is high and lofty stuff. It is cosmic and mysterious and transcendent. But what I want to suggest is the Bible actually gives us a lot of clues about what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their relationship was really like, if we know how to look for them. So what I want to do first is to define oneness the way that God reveals himself. And so John 17 is a place where we see Jesus praying, Father, glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. There's this mutual glorifying of one another. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. So they've always been doing this, this mutual appreciation society. Twice in the gospels we hear the audible voice of the father call out about the son. This is my beloved son with whom I well pleased. When Jesus prays in the garden, he prays, Abba, Father. That's the word for Papa or daddy. There's this beautiful intimacy that's reflected in those words, this closeness and affection. So in the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there's this back and forth glory and affection and affirmation and mutual love. Secondly, we see in John 5, it says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, when you have a relationship between two people and they are showing everything to one another, it means that there's no hiding in the relationship. It's a relationship marked by transparency and openness and honesty. Think about John 17, 10. Jesus is praying to the Father again. He says, everything I have is yours and everything that you have is mine. How would you characterize a relationship between two people who say, everything I have is yours and everything that you have is mine? We would say there's a deep mutuality where there's giving and receiving and a deferring to one another in the relationship. And finally, John chapter 10, 15, Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. These are two people saying, I get you. There's closeness. 
I see the world through your eyes. I understand you and know you from the inside out. And so you see we have these, these clues that are telling us about the divine oneness and the sense of what their community was like, even before he created anything. And so we would have to conclude that, that if this is the type of unity that God himself is experiencing, when he creates an image bearer, an imago Dei, Latin for the image of God, one of us, a human being, and says, they are to reflect me, then we must be designed to experience that type of intimacy as well. These clues are telling us about divine oneness. If there's anything that we can learn about it, it means that there's a selflessness, a deep affection, a respect for, a mutual generosity, a vulnerability, which is constant and abiding and deeply satisfying. Listen to what Paul Miller says about oneness. Oneness is a state of pure and constant compassion, devoid of any concern for self. Your needs are so totally mine that I am in you. My needs are so totally yours that you are in me. We have no secrets. Our hearts touch each other fully. Each of us gives the other all that we have. Our joy is complete. And so now what we've just described to you is the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when God brings Adam and Eve together and he says that they are to become one flesh as image bearers, two people join together in such a way that they're actually becoming something new, a new structure, a new unity. They're not just intermingled together, co-parents, cohabitating a, a single roof or sharing a bank account together. You're not just like kneading two lives together like chocolate chip cookies. Because in that, you still just have cookie dough and you have chocolate chips and the entities are still the same. But from a biblical perspective, marital oneness is having this molecular structure changed about who you are from God's perspective, that you and your spouse become something new in God's eyes, something organically new and vital. And so in our passage that we read, Paul uses the analogy of a body. You think about how these different parts function together, right, as one single unit. He says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, lo his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Could you imagine your legs deciding? You know, I, I think we should just have our own central nervous system. Like, the hands, who needs them? If they get some kind of a infection, we don't want to deal with all that nasty blood. Let's have our own nervous system in the legs, separate from the hands. That would never work. And that's not what the body's all about. Instead, when you get married, you share a new central nervous system, a new center of gravity. And that means that in your marriage, you are meant to dream together and serve together and affirm one another, to care for one another, to be open to one another, to see the world through one another's eyes, to raise children together, to depend on one another. And when you do those things to your spouse, you're doing them to yourself because you are one flesh. You are one body. The new, newly created one self body as husband and wife. So that's oneness defined. We are taking our cues from the, the Trinity and himself. And so with the rest of our time, what I want to try to do is to apply that. To say, now, how do we take those clues, those cues that we get 
from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and apply them so that we can pursue that kind of intimate connection in our marriage. What I'd say is there's really essentially three things that we need to focus on. And if we do these three things, then we can see oneness cultivated. And to the degree that we don't do these things or mess them up or do them poorly, to that degree, we will experience damage in our relationships and destruction in our marriages. And so number one, the first is this idea of vulnerability. The father shows the son all that he is doing. No hiding, complete exposure and openness, total transparency. Did you know and you see in Genesis 2, uh, what God does in that passage is he walks Eve forward and presents Eve to Adam at this first wedding ceremony. It's almost like he's the first matchmaker. Before match.com, there was God bringing Eve, the perfect bride, to Adam. And what it says is that they were naked and without shame. Now, the Hebrew word for naked does not just mean physical nakedness. It means total exposure. It means that they were naked spiritually and psychologically and emotionally, physically and every other way, 100% bare before one another. There was no guile. There was no pretense. They were absolutely who they were in front of one another, and they could see each other perfectly. Adam knew Eve all the way to her retinas. Eve knew Adam all the way to his backbone. It was deep. It was significant. And there's a principle there that nakedness plus righteousness equals absolute bliss. When we are naked and unashamed, it is awesome. And this is part of what God wants us to get back to in our own marriages. One of the pictures that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5 is this bathing metaphor. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Listen, washing her, cleansing her, and presenting her without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. And that means that a couple who is vulnerable with one another is where you allow your spouse to deal with your uncleanness your weaknesses, your shortcomings, to come at you with soap and scissors. (laughs) Love your wife as your own body. How do you care for your body? Well, you, you use scissors and you trim hair, unwanted nose hairs, right? And you, you deal with your body. You deal with the fat on your body and you comb your body and you wash your body. And of course you do that because you have a right and a responsibility to do that because it's your body. And in the same way, Scripture says that when you marry, your spouse is to have that same kind of access to your faults and your flaws and your failures. They have a right to talk to you about what's wrong. They have a right to talk to you about what's hard about you. But because of sin, we know that there's enormous risk. There's terror, risk of being rejected or misunderstood, that the person that you're revealing yourself to won't like what they see. And so what happens is we become touchy, we become sensitive, or we shut down altogether. And that's because the other side of the coin is that nakedness plus sin is abject terror. On the one hand, where there's nakedness and righteousness, we love it. Where there's nakedness plus sin, we want to run the absolute other direction. And so just like Adam and Eve, we use leaves of self-protection to cover our vulnerability. We hide behind things like work and hobbies, and success, or kids, or just general busyness. You know, 
Uh, and we're just too busy to deal with going deep and being truly open and vulnerable with one another. That's too hard. And honestly, you know, I don't want the fight and I don't want my wife to know all the deal, details of our finances. My inner thought life is too messy. Uh, you stay over in your corner. I'll stay in mine. Don't come at me until you've de dealt with your own crap, okay? You've got enough to take care of before you come at me with mine. And I would just say that if that's your posture in your relationships or you find yourself gravitating in that direction, then you are missing out and denying the one flesh nature that God has called you to because it's vulnerability and honesty and openness. One of the reasons that the goal of marriage is oneness is because oneness lets you be a part of washing another person and another person washing you. And the washing is part of the way that you are brought to maturity in Christ. You know, Paul says, this is why I'm here. Paul's not even married. He's a single man. And he says in Colossians 1, this is to the end in which I labor. It's to present everyone perfect in Christ, mature in Christ. And God is saying in our marriages, we are to present one another that same way towards maturity. We get to experience that. Are you open to your spouse? Or are you shutting down? Where is God calling you right now to take a step of vulnerability in your marriage? To open up because he is covering you in his righteousness. Secondly, affirmation. The son glorifies the father just as the father glorifies the son. Abba, father, this is my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. In his book on marriage, Tim Keller says that affirmation is so powerful because marriage is recreational. That there is a way in which your self-image is a compilation of verdicts that have been passed down to you, verdicts which you have been believed that have been made about you from other people, things that people have said that have created an image of who you believe yourself to be. And that means that now, in every relationship that we have, we are experts at covering up. I've used this relationship, or this illustration before, but it's almost like we've gone from Adam and Eve in the garden, totally bare and fully exposed, to Ralphie's little brother in the Christmas story. Now we start every relationship that way, with four sets of long johns, five ski suits, zipped up, 10 pair of gloves, boots, hats, hiding under academic achievement and work and popularity and success and beauty. We grab something in creation to cover up, something to hide behind, all the while longing for deep and meaningful connection, scared to death to reveal who we really are. And yet the beauty and the power of oneness with another person, one fleshness, is that now there's a companion, there's a partner, Someone who knows you and has a massive ability to overturn all those verdicts in a single word. Enter the love of Christ. Joe Novenson says that now because of the love of Christ, every relationship is something like a spiritual strip tease. This is what happens in our relationships. We're all covered up like Ralphie's little brother. And when we move towards somebody for the first time and we expose a little bit of who we are, we take off a glove and we might say something like, man, work is really tough right now. You know, or I'm really struggling at school. Or my parents split up when I was young. 
We watch very carefully. We tune in ultra-sensitively to how that person relates to us. And to the degree that they treat us and relate to us in a way that is commiserate, it's in line with the nature of Christ, then what we want to do when they affirm us is we instinctively want to take off another layer. We say, that felt so good. I was loved. I was honored. I want you to know me more. This is how relationships work. Well, the other thing is true too, that if you present yourself and take off just a little outer layer and you say something like that to somebody else and they trash you or laugh or make some kind of side joke or they don't say anything or they whatever, just ignore you, then do you know what you instinctively want to do? Put on 10 more layers. You want to layer up. And sometimes we enter into these relationships with our spouses and we bump into places as we're going through this process that feel like cast iron. It feels like we can't go any further. What is the gospel approach in that moment? Well, what God tells us is the love of Christ to affirm, to love. What you don't realize is that by opening yourself up to marriage, you have brought somebody in and given them access power into your life. And so when you use your words, you are not just shooting a little BB gun at them. You have a howitzer. You have a rocket launcher. And so the way that you related to your brother or sister growing up, where you said these little mean things and you think, ah, it's not going to hurt. This is a little flesh room. It's not that way. In your marriage, your words are so powerful. I want you to realize how powerful words of affirmation are to your significant other. You can't just trash them. You can't just say, what a jerk you are. Those words will actually take them out of their shoes and leave smoke coming up in the distance because you have such power as a spouse in oneness. Joe Novenson said uh, that because of the love of Christ in his marriage, he could get letters or emails or blank stares after a bad sermon And yet if Barb came up to him and she cupped her hands around his face and said, babe, I loved it, it would cancel out all the criticism. And so I'm just saying that, Melissa, right now, as you listen to the sermon, (laughs) that there's a very practical application for you, babe. This is the power. We're washing one another. You've got the razor blade exposed over their neck as you're shaving them and cleansing them. Here's this relationship where no one can nail you the way your spouse can, and yet no one has the same power to encourage, affirm, and build you up. Are there any patterns right now in the way that you communicate with your spouse, that you're speaking to one another, that need to change? Where do you need to repent or ask for forgiveness? for the ways that you've brought damage and created more self-protection instead of safety and security and healing with your words. Jesus brought cleansing and holy washing through the word. Words matter. And lastly, mutuality. This is the last one. Jesus said, everything I have is yours and everything that you have is mine. In marriage, there is no more acting independently of one another. Your actions, your finances, whether or not you go to church together, your anger, your unwillingness to forgive somebody else, 
in your family or somebody outside of your family, your idolatry, what you do with your free time, what you put into your body, what you watch on TV, everything that you do directly now impacts and influences someone else. And so the image of the body is pretty vivid. If your head turns left and your body tries to go right, you have a problem, an immediate one. Both must turn together because both are one. And so what that means is that in the important issues of life, you got to work hard to find consensus. You got to turn off your phone. You got to turn off your TV. And you got to do the hard work to work on your schedules and say, what are we going to prioritize in terms of our family and our commitments? What is the best way for us to educate and disciple our kids? What are we going to get involved with at church? How are we going to work through our boundaries with our in-laws? How are we going to budget and spend our money? What routines do we intend to have in terms of family devotions? And I, I realize, you know, we have four kids and life is busy. And it takes some very deliberate, intentional work on my behalf to lead us in this particular way. But it does not take long when Melissa and I are not connecting on these things to realize we're drifting and it's impacting this new creation dynamic. So I oftentimes think, let me just get alone and figure out our finances. Let me just get alone and figure out our holiday plans. And that is not the way that God intends for, their, for the mutuality to work between spouses. We're to be one. You know, when we went on staff with Campus Outreach, I'm sorry, when we went off staff with Campus Outreach in 2011, we had been on staff for 10 years. And um, I, I made a decision to go off staff and to go on staff with a church basically on my own after one day of prayer. I didn't ask Melissa what she thought. I didn't bring her into the process or ask her what she was envisioning, and it was a total mistake. I, I basically made a handshake deal with my previous pastor and told him, hey, I'm in. And then we went on staff for seven years uh, with this church, and it took me a long time to have a sense that that was the right decision. Something about leaving her out of the process left me very insecure, unstable, and uncertain. You know, when I came on staff with King's Chapel, Andrew did a great job of encouraging me, hey, you need to bring Melissa along for the ride on this. And so we, we did the interview process together. And I brought her in and we talked about it and we prayed together. And I would just sense I've had a much clearer sense that we were on the same page when we came here. And it changed everything about the process. And it showed me how delightful and it good it could be to have Melissa on my team. When we were running the uh, youth ministry last year, we sat down at Gallery Row on a number of occasions and we started brainstorming together for what we were gonna do for youth ministry. What do you think about this? What should we do about this? And we just like talked about it and prayed about it. It was exciting. It brought about this confidence and this excitement that I don't think I could have ever anticipated. And so there were, there's this shared passion, a sense of togetherness in worship and discipleship and parenting and serving and hospitality. I think you will feel empowered and you will feel a new kind of endurance and longevity to everything that you end up doing together. You know, in the rowing illustration, the beautiful thing about the swing, hitting the swing, is not that you went faster as a team, as a crew, but you exerted less energy and you were able to go further and longer and to persevere. 
And so I would just encourage you with this. Mutuality is this beautiful gift, but we've got to do the homework. You got to go to the marriage class. You got to go on the retreat. If you need to do the counseling, do the counseling. Take the financial peace class together. Make decisions together. Do it. Do not put it off. Do not put off these kinds of communication dates and working on these things together. It's so important. I close with this. Paul Miller says that because of sin, because of sin, there is nothing harder to achieve than oneness. And yet, God's solution is the cross. When you think about the cross, think about the vulnerability of Christ on the cross. That he came with humility into this world. He took on flesh. He was tempted in the wilderness and he was naked on the cross. Wherever marriage asks us to be vulnerable, Christ, our faithful husband, has been more vulnerable, more exposed, all so that we could become one with God again. Think about the truth and the affirmation of the cross. On the cross, Jesus is totally honest with us. He tells us that we are huge sinners, that the only thing that can be done to rescue us from the depth of our sin is for God himself to be on the cross. But it also tells us how much we're loved. God loves us. He affirms us. He gives us truth on the cross. He says, you're broken, but you're loved. And I want you to think about the mutuality because of the cross that he moves towards you with. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. I will ask the Father, and he will give another counselor to you, the Holy Spirit. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You are my disciples. Go make disciples, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. I have all authority. You have me. We are one. My mission, my power, my love, it's all yours because of the cross. It's so beautiful. You know, the oneness that God offers to his people in marriage is such an incredible gift. It's part of our very design that our joy and God's glory is tied together when we share oneness with other people, particularly with a spouse in covenant friendship and sexual intimacy. And oneness with others is an invitation into this mysterious glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, this Trinitarian union. It's like being invited into the Holy of Holies. It's beautiful. No wonder it's so good. No wonder it's so good and so edifying for those who pursue it and work at it and experience it. You know, Joe Novenson says that there's all these communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. Some of the incommunicable ones are the ones we're not supposed to share with God as human beings. Things like omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. But you know when you get married that there's this thing about omniscience where you, you almost know what the other person is thinking before they even say it or do it. And omnipresent, they may not be with you all the time, but it sure feels like your spouse is always around. They're with you everywhere for good or for bad. And omnipotence, omnipotence. Think about God's power. We don't share in that power, do we? Well, when your spouse has the power to affirm you and to re- redeem you and reprogram your self-image, I don't know if that's all power, but that's pretty good power. And so what Novenson says is, this is where we touch the Trinity. What a gift. Let's ask God that he would help us to pursue it, even as we go to the table this morning.
Well, Father, um, oneness is what we would all deeply desire. And I would long for that too, more and more in my marriage and more and more in my community with the body of Christ. And so, God, we thank you that you have invited us into the Holy of Holies, that you, um, as our groom and we as your bride, have been uh, called forth into a marriage covenant because of your grace and because of your love for us on the cross. And I pray that that would give us new freedom and new joy and new power, even, when, even in the places that are hardest to move forward to, to take a step in terms of vulnerability and exposure in our marriages. So help us to do that as the body of Christ and, and help us to see Jesus even now as we go to the table. We pray in your name, amen. You know, I was thinking about this um, ancient practice in um, Israel that in the time of Christ in, in Jewish culture, the way that a marriage would come together is that um, the, the young man's family and the young woman's family would sort of get together and begin working out the details of it. And, and then when they, they think that they had sort of most of it uh, put together and it was going to work out, they would get together in the home. And the young man who wanted to make the proposal would offer his future bride, hopefully, a glass of wine. And if she took the wine and she drank it, she was saying, I'm in, yes. Now, she didn't have to do that. She, she didn't have to make that choice. But if she drank the wine, you know, you know what that young man and his family would do? They would go back, they would leave. They weren't married, but they would go back to their home. And because this is the way that, that the culture works in most of the world today too, but certainly back then, the home, the, the father... Uh, the young man would begin building a room. He would, he, would be, be guild, uh, he would build new quarters for he and his future bride. And so they would leave together, he and his dad, and they would go start building onto their family compound. And when it was all done, he would go back to his betrothed and he would say, hey, the time is ready, let's go. And so they would head back and they would have this seven-day feast but when he first showed up and offered the wine, if she drank it, do you know what he would say to the young woman? He would say, I am going to prepare a place for you. In my father's home are many rooms. Don't be troubled. I will go and prepare a place for you. Now, where else do we hear those words? We hear those very words from Jesus to his disciples in the upper room as they are partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's an invitation. He is using an analogy that they could connect to to say, here is what I'm offering you. I'm offering you oneness with me. I'm offering to be the groom and for you to be my bride and for me to love you and to bring you in to oneness with me and my family, the Godhead. This is a beautiful invitation. As we come before this table, this is what we are celebrating every time we come to the table that we have a groom, one who's the lover of our soul, that he has offered us his body in holy matrimony. And you have the opportunity this morning to receive that in nourishment of your faith. So how do you receive this invitation? Well, I would say in the same way that the bride is called to leave and to cleave, 
then we need to leave and cleave. We need to leave behind, as we come to the table, the areas of our life of self-protection, the places where we feel afraid to be vulnerable, the places, our former way, ways of life where we run to this idolatry or that, where, uh, where we look for things to find life apart from our, our true husband. What might the Spirit be putting his finger on right now in your life that you would say, I need to leave that behind and cling to the love of Jesus again, my new husband. That's how we cleave. Faith upon the life of Jesus, his suffering, his death, and the hope for us in his resurrection. That's where my strength and ability to come from, or to love really comes from. And so this is the invitation that we come to when we we come to the table. And so what I want to do is pray. Uh, I want to invite uh, those who are serving to come forward and uh, to take their place in the front row as I'm praying, and then we will set aside the, the elements and invite everyone to come. Let's pray together. Father, would you nourish us now in the taking of the bread and the wine as you commanded so that we might remember always the passionate love that you have for us as your bride. Would you nourish our faith even now? We need it. Uh, God, we are so tempted to run to other things to find life. And we are hiders, expert people at covering up our vulnerability and sin. But thank you that in this table, you invite us to be covered by your righteousness and the work for us on the cross of Jesus. So help us to experience and tap into the love that you have for us in this table. We pray in your name.